Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Back in 1888, the residents of London's Whitechapel district were living in terror. I'm sure you've all heard the stories of Jack the Ripper. The mysterious killer stalked the seedy district by night, murdered five prostitutes, and sent taunting letters to the police, and ended up creating a legend for himself that endures to this day. The Ripper murders are often cited as one of the first serial killer stories in history to cause a media frenzy. Reporters for the cheap broadsheet newspapers that were widespread throughout Victorian London were constantly trying to one-up each other with each sensational story about the infamous killer. By the fall of 1888, an unprecedented one million newspapers covering the Ripper murders were sold each day. Today there's a whole industry in trying to solve the mystery of who Jack the Ripper really was. Countless books, movies, comics, even video games have been made about the elusive killer. And over the years, hundreds of suspects have been named, from the plausible to the completely outlandish. H.H. Holmes, Impressionist painter Walter Sickert, and even Prince Albert Victor, a.k.a. the Duke of Clarence, son of King Edward VII and second in line to the British throne, are some of the more famous names that have been tossed into the Ripper suspect pool. One thing that's less talked about in discussing Jack the Ripper is that the case is also often cited as having created the concept of criminal profiling. In October of 1888, Robert Anderson, the assistant commissioner of the London Metropolitan Police, wrote to noted surgeon Thomas Bond asking him to examine the evidence collected in the four murders that had occurred up to that point. Bond spent the next two weeks poring over the evidence. He even conducted the autopsy on the fifth and final victim, Mary Jane Kelly, who was killed at almost the same time he was preparing to submit his report. From his physical examination, Dr. Bond was able to determine that the victims were all murdered by the same person, and that the first four victims all had their throats cut from left to right. Although in the case of Mary Kelly, the only victim who was found indoors, the mutilations were so extreme he was unable to make the same determination. He did note the direction of the arterial spray, though, and it appeared consistent with the way the other victims were murdered. Although much of Bond's report focuses on the physical details of the crime, he also branched out from there to make some informed speculation about the Ripper's identity. At the time, there was widespread belief throughout law enforcement that Jack the Ripper may have been a surgeon or some other individual with medical training. Dr. Bond made the controversial claim that, to the contrary, the killer's crude skills with mutilating his victims indicated he had no medical skills, or even the technical knowledge of a butcher or horse slaughterer. Dr. Bond went on to describe a man of solitary habits, subject to periodic attacks of homicidal and erotic mania, and the character of the mutilations possibly indicating satyriasis, 
a technical term at the time for uncontrollable sexual desire. There are plenty of other occasions throughout the years that followed where police consulted medical and mental health professionals to provide what we would come to think of as a criminal profile in difficult cases. In 1974, the FBI formed its legendary behavioral science unit to investigate serial rape and homicides. Undoubtedly, the two most famous names associated with the unit are John Douglas and Robert Ressler. The two agents interviewed 36 serial murderers to gain insight into the minds of other such killers still at large. They broke serial criminals into two primary categories, organized and disorganized. Organized criminals are antisocial individuals who know the difference between right and wrong. They are not, on the surface, what we would tend to think of as insane, although they show no remorse for their crimes. Disorganized criminals, on the other hand, never plan their crimes ahead, and often leave evidence including fingerprints and blood behind. Disorganized perpetrators tend to be young, often under the influence of drugs or alcohol, and usually exhibit outward symptoms of mental illness. Today, criminal profilers have become legendary in the annals of true crime with their seemingly clairvoyant insight into the minds of criminals. But at the same time, some studies have shown that in reality, these criminal profiles may not be as effective as books and movies have led us to believe, and that the vast majority of crimes are still solved by old-fashioned detective work. In fact, it's difficult to pinpoint any single case that was ever solved solely by the criminal profile. This isn't to say that criminal profiles can't be helpful. Indeed, profilers like John Douglas and Robert Ressler have provided useful insight that helps steer investigations into the right direction. Over the years, further involvement with the psychiatric community and more study of criminal behavior have only improved the field. One of the problems with criminal profiling is that even though investigators are constantly learning more and more how to think like a criminal, so too are many criminals getting smarter. So much of criminal profiling is based on understanding criminal patterns and predicting their behavior. But what happens when a murderer decides to break all the rules? And his entire motive for killing involves having no motive at all. Someone like that, with no criminal history, no pattern to their crimes, and no way to connect them, might turn out to be the ultimate predator. I'm Nate Hale, and I was social distancing way before it was cool. And this is The Conspirators. Just off the side of a four-lane road in Anchorage, Alaska, stood a small coffee kiosk called Common Grounds. It was a tiny stand barely big enough for one employee at a time. That was the case on February 1st, 2012, when 18-year-old Samantha Koenig, the sole barista working the night shift, went missing. Samantha was usually really good about closing the stand properly, but when the morning barista showed up the following day to open up, she found the kiosk in disarray and the night's take missing. Once the Anchorage police became involved, they were perplexed by what might have happened to Samantha. It seemed wildly out of character for the young woman to have simply emptied the cash register and run off. She was a popular high school senior who seemed to get along with everyone. She did have a history of some drug use in her past, but nothing so serious it set off any major alarm bells for police. The two most important people in her life were her boyfriend, Duane, 
and her single father, James. Early on, police investigators did begin to wonder if Samantha really did run off. There were no major signs of a struggle, and the coffee stand had a panic button inside that hadn't been pressed. Police were later able to determine Samantha had been using her cell phone right before she disappeared. It turned out that she had been fighting with her boyfriend over her suspicions that he'd been cheating on her. But she'd also spoken to her father that same evening, asking him to bring her some dinner, which didn't really mesh well with their theory that Samantha planned to run away. The detective assigned to the case was Monique Dahl. She'd spent 10 years working in narcotics, and this was her first case assigned to her as a homicide detective. Although at this point there still wasn't any particular indication that this case even involved a homicide. When Dahl learned Samantha had sent her boyfriend a series of angry texts, she was already halfway convinced the girl had left of her own volition and would turn up in a day or so. But that all changed once she viewed the coffee stand surveillance tapes. The tape in question showed Samantha happily working her shift in the kiosk. A little before 8 p.m., Samantha could be seen talking to a customer just out of view. There was no audio. Then about two minutes and six seconds into the tape, Samantha's demeanor changed. She suddenly put up her hands and backed away from the window. Then, after a short time when she walked around looking very nervous, she turned out the lights inside the kiosk. Then what appeared to be the muzzle of a gun appeared through the window. Samantha next turned around and got on her knees. She remained in that position for another few minutes before she got up, walked over to the cash register, and scooped out the money. The footage is dark and grainy, and it's a little difficult to tell what she did with the cash at that point. But then, at just past the five-minute mark, a shadowy male figure leaned halfway in through the window. Seconds later, the man pulled himself gracefully forward through the window and landed on his feet to Samantha's right. It was still so dark it remained impossible to make out the man's features, but it was obvious he was tall and fit-looking. Within minutes, he forced Samantha to get back on her feet and ordered her out the door. From there, the last glimpse of them the surveillance tape showed were the two of them walking away through the snow-covered parking lot. The entire incident took 17 minutes total, and after that, police were left with no idea who the man was or where he had taken Samantha Koenig. The police released the surveillance video to the public asking for help, but all they could say from the tape was that the suspect was a male, dressed in a hoodie and a baseball cap, and he was significantly taller than Samantha, who stood five foot five. Since this was now a kidnapping situation, the FBI were brought in on the case. Aside from the police and the FBI, there was no one so deeply involved in the search for Samantha than her own father, James. He was a trucker who'd had a few brushes with the law himself. Sam was his only daughter, and upon learning she'd been kidnapped, James hit the streets and began handing out missing flyers with Samantha's name and picture. He also set up a Facebook page where he began collecting tips about where she may have disappeared to and accepting donations for Samantha's safe return. Detective Dahl interviewed Samantha's boyfriend, Dwayne, and he had his own curious story to tell. He told her that he'd gone to the coffee kiosk around 8.30 that night to pick her up. When he pulled up, the lights inside the stand were off. Then, when he got out of his truck and peered inside, he was immediately concerned when he saw Samantha wasn't there. Dwayne showed Detective Dahl the text exchange he'd had with Samantha that evening. The two of them had been arguing over Dwayne flirting with other girls and Samantha's suspicions he'd been cheating on her. Dwayne told the detective he went to James's house and waited to hear from Samantha, hoping she'd just gone off with a friend and would contact him once she cooled off. 
Then around 3 a.m., Duane said he had the strange urge to step outside. He couldn't exactly explain why, but when he did, he said he saw a man with a mask standing about six feet away going through his pickup truck. The two of them stared at each other for a moment before the man calmly shut the door and walked away. Duane went back inside and told James what happened. He searched the pickup and realized Samantha's driver's license, which she always kept inside the truck, was missing. After that, Duane went back inside the house and went to sleep. Detective Dahl was dumbfounded why neither Duane nor James called the police and told them about the strange encounter. Or, for that matter, reported Samantha missing. Duane told her he didn't think the police would do anything until Samantha had been missing for 24 hours. That's actually a myth that gets perpetuated by a lot of detective movies and TV shows. You can actually report someone missing to the police at any time. Days went by with no clue to what happened to Samantha. Producers from the Nancy Grace Show and all the major news networks became interested in the story. The FBI tried tracing Samantha's cell phone, but it appeared to be turned off. There were some rumors that sprung up saying that Samantha may have staged her own abduction and that either James or Duane were involved. But there was no evidence to support this. Plus, it didn't make much sense either, considering how involved in the search for Samantha the two men were. For some reason, the Anchorage police waited until February 20th, three weeks after Samantha's abduction, to request the surveillance videos from the Home Depot across the street from the coffee stand. The video showed a new angle of the crime. This tape showed the man forcing Samantha to walk toward a white Chevy pickup truck with no license plate. At one point, Samantha managed to break free and make a run for it, but then the man tackled her and said something to her that got her back under his control. The last thing the tape showed was the man shoving Samantha inside the truck and the two of them driving off. FBI imaging experts were able to enhance the grainy footage they had enough to tell that Samantha's abductor was a white male wearing a hoodie and a baseball cap. They couldn't make out his face well, but it appeared the man's jacket may have said the word core on it, suggesting he may have been in the military. Then at 7.56 p.m. on February 24th, the case took another turn when Duane got a mysterious text message from Samantha's phone. It read, Connor Park sign under pick of Albert. Ain't she purdy? When Duane told James about the text, James rushed to the park and found a Ziploc bag tacked to the community bulletin board that contained a lengthy ransom note and some blurry photos of Samantha. In one of the photos, Samantha had duct tape over her mouth. She was wearing eyeliner and she was facing the camera. Her hair was tied up in a braid, which was something she never did. In another photo, a man's muscular arm could be seen holding her from behind. In another, a copy of the Anchorage Daily News dated February 13, 2012 could be seen. The ransom note demanded $30,000 be deposited into Samantha's bank account. James was able to front the money himself because his Facebook donations had collected nearly double that amount. Police told James not to deposit the full amount all at once. That way, they could attempt to frustrate Samantha's abductor into making a mistake and possibly track him when he used the debit card to make a withdrawal. James initially deposited $5,000 into the bank account. Within a few days, a man made three withdrawals of $500 each from a series of ATMs throughout Anchorage, the maximum each machine would allow. The surveillance footage from each was of little use, the man was wearing a mask and sunglasses during each transaction. Police rushed to the scene each time they received an alert saying the debit card was in use, but each time they just missed catching the individual by minutes. After the third withdrawal in Anchorage was made, the account went silent for a few weeks. Then police were shocked when they received an alert on March 7th that the card was being used hundreds of miles away in Wilcox, Arizona, 
Then a couple days later, they received another alert from Lordsburg, New Mexico, and another on March 10th in Humboldt, Texas, followed by another withdrawal in the nearby town of Shepherd. In each instance, surveillance footage showed the man making the withdrawals wore a face mask and a hoodie. They were able to see the vehicle he was driving, though, a white Ford Focus. It was a sharp-eyed Texas Highway Patrol officer named Steve Rayburn who recalled seeing a be-on-the-lookout alert for a kidnapping suspect driving a white Ford Focus when he spotted just such a vehicle on March 12th in the town of Lufkin. He pulled the car over and ordered the driver to hand over his identification. The vehicle's driver gave the state trooper an Alaska state driver's license that said his name was Israel Keys. And it turns out this man may have been one of the most terrifying serial killers you've never heard of. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Before we continue, I wanted to tell you about this episode's sponsor, Raycon. I recently got a chance to test out a pair of Raycon's E25 earbuds, and I have to say I'm impressed. They're stylish and fit comfortably in my ears, and I really liked how easy they were to pair with my phone as soon as I opened up the nifty little charging case. The sound is crisp and clear and sounds especially good if you're cranking up the bass. Whether you're working from home or working on your fitness and want what you're listening to to be what you're listening to, not what your family is listening to, everyone needs a great pair of wireless earbuds. But before you go dropping hundreds of dollars on a pair, you need to check out the wireless earbuds from Raycon. Raycon earbuds started about half the price of other premium earbuds on the market, and they still sound just as amazing as some of those other top audio brands you know. The everyday E25 earbuds I get to check out are their newest and best ones yet. With six hours of playtime, seamless Bluetooth pairing, more bass, and compact design that gives you a nice, noise-isolating fit. Unlike a lot of other wireless options, Raycon earbuds are stylish and discreet and don't have any dangling wires or stems to distract anyone while you're on a video call. Raycon's wireless earbuds are really comfortable, and they come with a selection of different pads to fit in the ear. They're perfect for conference calls or listening to your favorite podcast. I've tried a lot of different headphones and earbuds over the years, and I think the E25s measure up really well. In fact, when I got my pair and started using them, a bunch of family members all started asking how they could get a pair too. Raycon was co-founded by Ray J and a lot of other big names in the music world like Snoop Dogg, Cardi B, and Melissa Etheridge swear by them too. Pick up a pair and see what all the hype is about. Now's the time to get the latest and greatest from Raycon. Get 15% off your order at buyraycon.com slash TC. That's buyraycon.com slash TC for 15% off Raycon wireless earbuds. Buyraycon.com slash TC. And now, back to the show.
In the annals of true crime, you've undoubtedly heard of some of the most famous serial killers like Ted Bundy, John Wayne Gacy, and Jeffrey Dahmer. They were known for targeting a specific type of individual in order to fulfill their sick motives. But in the case of Israel Keyes, the man had no apparent motive other than to kill. He didn't fit any known pattern. He didn't have a particular victim type. Keyes just loved killing people. Even though Keyes' name had never popped up on law enforcement's radar before, it was obvious from the get-go they had the right man. When police searched Israel Keyes' vehicle, they found clothing matching that of the individual in the surveillance videos, along with a gun, Samantha Koenig's ID, and her debit card. They also soon found his white Chevy pickup truck parked by his home back in Anchorage, Alaska, where he lived with his girlfriend and young daughter. He wasn't very cooperative with police at first, but they were eventually able to piece together the man's life prior to his arrest. The 34-year-old was born in Cove, Utah on January 7, 1978, to a large Mormon family. He was the second of ten children, and when he was three or four, the family moved to Colville, Washington. They homeschooled Israel and his siblings, raising them all in a one-room cabin without running water or electricity. When Keyes was a child, his parents became involved in a white supremacist church group known as The Ark who associated with the sect known as Christian Identity. It was during this time they befriended two brothers named Shane and Chevy Kehoe, who were later convicted of the murders of William Muller and his family in 1996. The Kehoe brothers would also become nationally known when their names popped up during the investigation into the Oklahoma City bombings. Israel Keyes renounced his Christian faith when he was in his teens and began telling everyone he was now a Satanist. He started breaking into houses and committing petty thefts while he was in his teens. He served in the U.S. Army from 1998 to 2001, where he was awarded numerous medals and received an honorable discharge under the rank of specialist. In 2007, he moved to Alaska and started his own construction business. To anyone who has studied the case, it's apparent the primary reason Keyes moved to the remote state was so that he could stay hidden from law enforcement while he worked on his secret hobby of killing humans. When police first brought Keyes in for interrogation, he refused to say anything. Detectives pressed him by showing Keyes the mountain of evidence they'd already collected against him. Keyes eventually agreed to talk, but before he would do so, he demanded a couple of things. A cigar and a peanut butter Snickers bar. Although the police have released many of the interrogation tapes in which Keyes offers his confession, his description of what he did to Samantha Koenig was so graphic and disturbing those tapes have never been released publicly. What we do know is that Keyes took the young woman and hit her in a small shed just outside his home in Anchorage. Inside the shed, he cranked up the music to cover Samantha's screams to hide the noise from his living girlfriend and 10-year-old daughter as he raped and murdered the young woman. Keyes' confession confirms something that was already widely suspected, that Samantha Koenig was dead. Not only that, but she was already dead in the photographs Keyes took of her that he included with his ransom note. After she was dead, Keyes took Samantha's body and placed it in a box in his shed. Then the following morning, he woke his girlfriend and daughter up and abruptly told them they were going on a trip. The three of them headed down to New Orleans, where they boarded a cruise ship for two weeks. When Keyes returned two weeks later, he had to thaw Samantha's now-frozen body out. He then applied makeup to her face sewed her eyelids open with fishing line and braided her hair in order to give the impression she was still alive in the ransom photos he took. He then took Samantha's body along with his ice fishing gear out to Matanuska Lake, where he cut a hole in the ice and dumped her body down the hole. 
Afterwards, he proceeded to catch some fish that he brought home and served to his family. It seems especially bizarre, but Keyes really considered himself a family man. As investigators began to get him to open up, he had several demands, including that he wanted to be convicted and executed as quickly as possible. He also wanted the details of his crimes kept hidden from the public so that his 10-year-old daughter wouldn't find out what he'd done. Keyes' first attempted murder was in Maupin, Oregon in 1997. He'd been planning on abducting and possibly murdering someone for weeks. He finally staked out a location in the forest near Maupin, in an area that got a lot of hikers and rafters. He snatched a teenage girl who'd gotten separated from her group and dragged her inside one of the public bathrooms where he tied her up and sexually assaulted her. But the girl managed to talk Keyes out of killing her and he lost his nerve after raping her and just let her go. But after that, Keyes vowed to never leave another victim alive again. This is where Keyes really began to develop his modus operandi, which is to say he refused to have one. Keyes expressed admiration for killers like Ted Bundy, but Keyes determined the real reason killers like Bundy and John Wayne Gacy got caught was because they established a pattern for themselves that put detectives on their trail. Keyes considered himself the evolved form of the modern serial killer. Someone who didn't have a particular type of victim, and who didn't leave behind a trail of clues connecting his crimes. He simply loved to kill. Young or old, male or female, it didn't matter to him. He was also extraordinarily good at preparing to commit crimes for years in advance. For around 14 years, Keyes traveled around the country burying murder kits in random locations that contained things like knives, ropes, plastic bags, duct tape, caustic chemicals for dissolving flesh, and other things he might need in the future. Then when he decided he wanted to murder someone, Keyes rented a car and drove thousands of miles across the United States, dug up one of his murder kits, and found the most convenient victim he could. Unlike a lot of serial killers, Keyes didn't stalk his victims far in advance. He just picked whoever happened to cross his path. He paid for his gas, supplies, and hotel stays in cash, leaving no digital trail. He'd often find his victims in remote locations, sometimes along park trails or campgrounds. Other times when he targeted someone at their home, he scoped for specific things that worked in his favor, like an attached garage, no kids, no dogs, and no cars in the driveway. As soon as he was done committing one of his murders, Keyes left the area, never to return. To date, some of Israel Keyes' murder kits have been found in Alaska, Washington, Texas, Wyoming, Arizona, and New York. But there could still be others out there that remain buried. In fact, it seems highly likely that if Keyes hadn't grown overconfident and begun breaking some of his own rules, he might still be killing to this day. In the case of Samantha Koenig, he spotted her near his home in Anchorage and decided to abduct and murder her on the spur of the moment. Keyes normally would have never abducted someone so close to home, except by that point he'd started to get sloppy. Keyes also confessed to committing several bank robberies and burglaries in Texas and New York as a means of financing his serial killing. Keyes told investigators he could tie up a lot of missing person cases and unsolved murders around the country, but he always wanted something in return, whether it was something as simple as a candy bar and a cigar, or something as big as keeping his name out of the press. He also remained frustratingly vague about a lot of his killings. He admitted to murdering at least one person in New York State. He also admitted to murdering a New Jersey woman in April 2009 and burying her body near Tupper Lake but neither of those victims were ever identified by name. 
He did admit to killing Bill and Lorraine Courier of Essex, Vermont. Aside from Samantha Koenig, the Couriers were the only victims of Israel Keys that have ever been identified. Prior to Keyes' admission, the best anyone knew was that Bill and Lorraine Courier had simply vanished without a trace. Keyes admitted to breaking into their home on June 8, 2011, then shooting and killing Bill before sexually assaulting and strangling Lorraine. In the case of the Courier murders, Keyes had buried one of his murder kits near their home two years earlier. Keyes admitted to wrapping up Bill and Lorraine's bodies in trash bags and hiding them in the basement of an abandoned house near where he'd killed them. But when police went to the location to recover the bodies, they were shocked to see the house had been demolished and the bodies had been carried off with all the rubble to a local landfill. For some baffling reason, several members of the construction crew had complained about the heavy smell of decomposition in the days prior, but never bothered informing anyone before leveling the structure. To this day, we don't know exactly how many people Israel Keys murdered, and it's possible we never will. On December 2, 2012, Keyes committed suicide inside his cell at the Anchorage Correctional Complex by slashing his wrists. Even though we don't know exactly how many victims Israel Keyes may have had, nor who they all were, he did leave behind a clue that may tell us something. After Keyes slashed his wrists, he took what time he had left to draw a pentagram and a series of skulls on several sheets of paper. There were 11 skulls in total, the last of which contained a note that said, we are one. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for listening. I also wanted to remind you that if you're interested in helping support the show, we currently have a Patreon account, where you can get access to all sorts of bonuses, including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and our exclusive bonus mini-episodes. If you're not on Patreon, another great way you can help support the show is to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. Each one of your ratings and reviews helps boost us higher in Apple's charts, and spreads the good word to more people. Elsewhere, you can find us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com, where you can hear our entire back catalog of shows. Feel free to drop us a line on any of your social media, or even send us a good old-fashioned email at theconspiratorspodcast.com. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll join us again next time. Lastly, before we go, I wanted to share a promo with you about a great new podcast Conspirators listeners might be interested in. Here's my friend Laura to tell you all about it. We all enjoy a little mystery. And on the new podcast, One Strange Thing, that's just what you'll get. Every other week, One Strange Thing presents forgotten stories from America's news archives. They all have something in common, a single element that can't quite be explained. I'm Laura Norton. Join me on One Strange Thing, and you'll hear about bizarre events that unfolded in our country's local newspapers but never made it much further than that. No matter the place or the people, One Strange Thing brings you stories that are very real and just a little otherworldly. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.